Well, hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. This is a teaching ministry that is called Encourage, Challenge, and Disciple the People of God. Uh, today is March the 27th, and we're going to continue our study on the breath of God. Uh, I think we've already been together five times in regards to this subject. Uh, so uh, just go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. That's what I use. Um, so Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 is where we're going to start. Just a few things before we get started. Just want to remind you that all of our studies are placed on the website. You can get there at duanespearman.org. It'll take you to the uh, written studies, audio studies, and the video studies. Um, I have uh, spent a lot more time recently doing... I guess more audio um, because I've been putting them on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't subscribed to this, this is new. Actually, they've been publishing there for quite some time, but I finally got it validated the other day. My son had to help me with the graphic. It was too big. But uh, you can listen to these on your phone. Uh, and then, of course, SoundCloud, which is where I post it, they actually do have an app that you can download to your phone as well. Uh, so I just finished up Rightly Dividing. did a, uh, a study on Romans chapter, chapter 11, Rightly Dividing Romans 11. So I encourage you to check that out. And then just uh, remember that on the website I have a link to... Um, my most recently released commentary on the book of Acts, getting ready in the next couple of weeks to release one on the book of Daniel. So I um, encourage you to take a look at that. And if you've read it and you've enjoyed it, uh, I you can go down here and actually give it a review. You can follow me. Um, so uh, I'd appreciate that uh, very much. So, all right, let me go ahead and Get my uh, study notes back up here. Here we go. All right, the breath of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12 says, The word of God is quick, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the whole purpose of this study is to just look at the Bible itself. Understanding that the Word of God is central uh, to the whole of the Christian faith, um, but to adequately understand it, and most do not, <laughs> uh, you got to take a closer look at the issues of revelation, the issues of inspiration, how it was transmitted down to the Bible we hold in our hands today. Then also looking at some proofs of inspiration, which include fulfilled prophecy, scientific accuracy, historical accuracy, and then the last thing we talked about was transformed lives. So the next subject that we're going to deal with is inerrancy. So let's uh, get down in our notes to the issue of inerrancy and, um, and pick up from there. Transmission, fulfilled prophecy, scientific accuracy, historical accuracy, transformed lives, inerrancy. Inerrancy means that the Bible is without error. That means there's no mistakes in it. Um, 
But unfortunately, now, and when I say that, that doesn't mean there's not a typo. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't some numbers that had issues. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that when we get down to what we call handwritten scribal errors. So we'll get down to that. But inerrancy means the Bible is without error. And unfortunately, there are different meanings for this word. You remember we said there's different meanings for the word inspired. Um, the left, modernists, liberals, um, will say, well, the word inspired, it's, it's inspired as it inspires me. Therefore, it's inspirational. No, that's not what we mean. <laughs> the word inspired means God breathed, the breath of God, and therefore it is perfect. Um, so j just like with inspiration, they have taken the word inerrancy and made it mean different things. To the modernist, uh, it means that the Bible is inerrant in its purpose only. Uh, you know, it might have some, you know, historical inaccuracies, scientific inaccuracies, uh, things like that, prophetical inaccuracies. Um, you know, of course, they have to do this because, you know, they they don't believe in the supernatural things of the Bible. You know, which amazes me. I, w I remember as a young student in uh, college, I took an Old Testament survey course, and my professor was a liberal and um, he did not believe in the virgin birth. Uh, he did not believe in the, uh, the miracles of the Bible. Everything was in the natural to him. Everything was, you know, like the Red Sea was not actually the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. And the Reed Sea is only ankle deep. Um, and there was a wind that blew that made it look like it was part. That's what the modernist does. They explain away everything. Uh, they basically explain away their faith. You know, and the thing that I don't understand is how can you believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth? And most of them are not creationist. They believe they bit into evolution. Um, but how can you believe in a God and yet explain away every, how can you believe in heaven, hell, which most of them don't believe in hell. It's interesting. It's easy to believe in heaven. It's a little harder to believe in hell. Uh, but they explain away everything until they've, they've basically explained away their faith. That's why it's impossible to recognize them from the world because they really are of the world. They've, they have no faith because they have placed their faith in what they can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and that's not faith <laughs> at all. Um, so to the modernists, it means that the Bible um, is inerrant in its purpose only. Now, to the conservative or the Bible believer, it means that the Bible is inerrant, period. It's without error. So the question in conservative circles is, does that only apply to the autographs, or does it extend to the manuscripts? Now, there's a difference between an autograph and a manuscript. An autograph is the original writings uh, that the writers wrote. That was crazy, but 
It's their original writings. The manuscript is a copy of those original writings. We don't have the original writings. I do not have the very vellum, you know, that the Apostle Paul wrote on. I do not have the papyrus that Moses scribbled on. Um, the only thing we have today is manuscripts, which are copies of those. And we've talked about that in transmission. The faithfulness that the scribes, the copyists took, to make sure that we have an accurate uh, copy of the autographs. So, very important, because we don't have the original autographs today. Well, there's no doubt that there are indeed grammatical errors uh, in the manuscripts. Now, I don't think for a minute there was grammatical errors in the autographs. But in the manuscripts that we have today, there are grammatical errors that have occurred and we call these scribal errors. For example, in 1 Kings 4.26, and Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen, so 40 and 12. But 2 Chronicles 9.25, and Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So did he have 40,000 stalls for his horses, or did he have 4,000 stalls for his horses? Now, I've seen guys bend over backward to try to explain that, but it it looks like a scribal error because there's no doubt there's a disagreement there as to the number of stalls that Solomon had. However, we can say that we, that, that we have nearly 5,000 700 manuscripts today, and they can be reconstructed with over a 99% accuracy, and that less than 1% has no negative effect on any major doctrine. Because um, in the end, whether Solomon had 4,000 or 40,000, uh, that's not a doctrinal issue there. Uh, in the end, we have to conclude that the issue of inerrancy can only apply to the originals. It cannot apply to the copies because it was either 40 or 4, okay? So when we say inerrancy, it applies to the originals, not necessarily the manuscripts. But like we've talked about earlier, um, in transmission, the care that they took to make sure that what we have in our hands is exactly what they wrote was tremendous, and we can't deny that. Um, Henry Haley, or Henry H. Haley, uh, once wrote, apart from any theory of inspiration or any theory of how the Bible books came to their present form or how much the text may have suffered in transmission, at the hands of the editors and the copyist, it bears on its face the stamp of its author that it is in a unique and distinctive sense the Word of God. So, again, I mean, we can re reconstruct all 5,700 manuscripts, and they are 99% identical. There's only a 1% variance, and it has no impact on the major doctrines of the faith. 
whatsoever. With that said, I believe that the best translation, and there are a lot of translations today that are off of a bunch of manuscripts. Um, and you basically have two uh, sets of, or two kinds. Well, there's only really two. How can I say this? There are two sets of manuscripts that our modern English translations come off of today. You have the Sinaiticanus Vaticanus manuscripts that is where we get the New American Standard, the NIV, the New Revised Standard, the New King James Jews, um, just has some notes in comparing the differences with the other set of manuscripts, which is the, the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. Um, so really, there's only two set of manuscripts. They are what we call um, the Sinaiticanus Vaticanus falls under what's called the, the Hort Westcott text and the received text. So um, that's the only two that we have today, the sets of manuscripts. For years, it was just the received text or the Textus Receptus. But later, they found these um, these copies, and Westcott and Hort assembled them, and they came off of what was called the Sinaiticanus and the Vaticanus, Vatican, it was found in the Vatican, um, and it's called the Westcott-Hort, or the Hort-Westcott text. So today, every translation that I have behind me back here, uh, which 90% 90, 90 of them are King James, either comes off of the Westcott-Hort or comes off the received text. Um, and again, that's taking all those manuscripts, those 5,700 manuscripts, and even if you take all of them and you mesh them together, you've got 99% the same. Now, people fall on which ones they like the best. I personally believe that the received text is the best. Um, quite frankly, I... You know, finding something after the fact somewhere in the Vatican, um, you know, I, I just personally lean toward the received text. And unfortunately, there's only one translation in the English language today that is of any, as far as being circulated, there's little off translations here and there, but the main one's the King James, and of course, off of that came the new King James. Uh, I believe they are the best. I received the, the I, I think the received text, the majority text, as it's also called, is the best. But again, that's that's my opinion. Uh, that's my preference, and I'm not going to fight you if you don't agree with that. So we believe in inerrancy. Period. The Bible is without error, um, and then that leads us to canonization, which is the final note. Um, a canon is a measuring rod, a rule, or a standard. Now, in reference to the Bible, we call it the canon of Scripture. Uh, and the canon refers to those books that have been measured, that have been found worthy to be in the Bible. Uh, and regarding the Old Testament, the Old Testament was firmly established long before Jesus. So those books have never really, not in the modern era, come into question. Jesus 
confirmed this by quoting or alluding to every book in the Old Testament, with the possible exception of Esther. Esther was a bit controversial from time to time. Um, But the Old Testament has already been measured. (laughs) It's already been, it was canonized before Christ, accepted by the Jews. Um, Matter of fact, Luke 11.51, Jesus said, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. He was alluding to the Old Testament. And he described the Old Testament as being from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias. Now, to understand this statement more clearly, we need to understand that the Hebrew Bible begins with Genesis, which is where we find the blood of Abel, and it ends with 2 Chronicles, which is where we find the blood of Zacharias. So when Jesus said, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, he was basically saying from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, um, Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So this served to affirm that Jesus believed everything from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, which is the Old Testament that we have in our hands today. Now, regarding the New Testament, it, is, it was essentially decided by several factors. And again, this is a whole seminary course on canonization, but that's not the point of this study. Um, the first thing they looked at was authorship. Who wrote the books? I mean, the Catholic Bible, for example, has a bunch of uh, you know intertestamental books uh, that that we call the Apocrypha that have been rejected because they cannot be confirmed as having been written by one of the apostles or someone endorsed by those apostles. Um, also. Uh, were those books accepted by the church, by the local churches? Um, the apocryphal books were not, for the most part, accepted by those churches, so they're rejected. The books that we have in our current New Testament were. Um, the church fathers, did they recognize the books that make up our New Testament as being authoritative? And they did. And, of course, there's disagreement on the apocryphal books. Uh, And the apocryphal books, if you study those, if you get like a new Revised Standard Version, um, I forget what it's called. I used to have it. I had to take it in seminary. But um, when you start looking at those apocryphal books, Maccabees and Esdras and Baal the Dragon, I mean, there's just contradictions. They contradict each other, and they contradict other Uh, canonized books that are accepted, so they've been rejected. The subject matter um, and personal edification. Um, And bear in mind, there are books, for example, we know that Paul probably wrote four letters to Corinth, but only two of those letters are in the Bible. What happened to the other two? We don't know, but apparently God didn't want them in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or they would have been there. Um, so, Because Paul makes reference to other writings that he sent to the church, and only two of them made it. Um, and the current New Testament that we have was finalized at the Third Council of Carthage, uh, 
in 397 AD using those um, those prerequisites there, authorship, acceptance, father's recognition, subject matter, personal edification. So in conclusion, there's no doubt that God has preserved his word throughout the centuries in such a way that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we indeed hold the very words of God in our hands. And that was the point of this study. Uh, you can trust the Bible. And, and I wish we did it more often in our culture today. But, you know, we have gotten away from the Bible. We have gotten into touchy-feely. Um, the modernist liberals of our day have learned to speak in uh, words of feeling uh, I, I I think the biggest if I had to separate a a, a liberal and, and I use the word liberal it's not a negative word when you go to college you get a liberal arts degree liberal just means liberated free thinking there's nothing wrong with being a quote liberal in that sense but the word today um, has a negative connotation in that they they have no bounds. They have no lines. They have no limits. They have gone beyond the borders of the pride land, as they said in The Lion King. <laughs> uh, so when you use the word liberal today, it has a different meaning. Uh, I mean, liberals voted for the current president. You know, conservatives, for the most part, did not. I mean, it's just two political ideologies today. But when we talk about the Bible and we say a liberal— we mean someone that has gone beyond the border, that no longer accepts the Bible as the final say. So even though the Bible deals with the issues of homosexuality, and it does in very harsh terms, oh, you know, well, maybe not, you know, or life in the womb, maybe not. The liberal doesn't believe the Bible, period. They are the ones that redefine the word inspiration. They are the ones that redefine uh, the word inerrant. Um, and that's sad because that, has, I believe, has what is what has caused the deterioration and the death of the church in the United States as well as Europe. It died a long time ago in Europe, but now we are becoming a post-Christian nation in the United States because for the most part, we no longer believe the Bible. Even the average one that sits in a church on a Sunday morning, they're sitting in a liberal church, you know, that, you know, it's got, you know, you know, doing things that are outside the confines of Scripture. I think, I think today uh, liberals or leftists, if, and leftist, uh, someone that's even to, further to the left than a liberal, um, it's misplaced compassion. Um just because they're compassionate about it doesn't mean that God has changed his mind. <laughs> and so I think they're guilty of misplaced compassion. I encourage you when you read the Word of God, be a conservative. Believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. If it literally says it, it literally means it. If God condemns it, then it is still condemned today, and it'll be condemned tomorrow. God doesn't change his mind. God, the Bible says, does not change. He altereth not. So, in conclusion, we have the Word of God in our hands. The question is whether or not we choose to believe it.
God bless you guys. Hope you have a great day. It's been a study, a great study. Remember that God loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for your good.